Welcome to episode number 56 of Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch or grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Rand Fishkin, who I'm very excited to have on. In 2004, he co-founded an SEO software company called Moz, where he served as CEO until 2014, and then in 2018, he left Moz to start SparkToro, which is a software and data company focused on helping people understand how and where to reach their target audiences. It's going to be an incredible tool. I'm so excited for it to actually come out. He's also the author of Lost and Founder, a book that I read read actually multiple times now and lost and founder is a painfully honest field guide to the startup world which he released in 2018 and as i mentioned it is incredible rand is also a frequent keynote speaker on marketing and entrepreneurship topics and he speaks around the world on these topics i actually saw him at the Startup Grind Global Conference in Silicon Valley, and he was incredible. I missed one of his other ones. He did two talks, but Rand has accomplished a lot in the marketing world, very well known for SEO, and probably one of the smartest people in that space. So I'm excited for you to listen to this episode where he just drops so many insights and keeps it so real, which is why I enjoyed the interview so much. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating review on different podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts with iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and you can even check out the show on YouTube. Also, the newly released Facebook community, uh, you can check that out with facebook.com slash groups slash justgogrind, sharing different information on the podcast, behind the scenes, and also insights into launching growing a business, a bunch of other entrepreneurs in there, check it out, facebook.com slash groups slash just go grind. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Rand Fishkin from Moz and now Spark Toro. Enjoy. Rand, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, excited to have you on here after you know seeing you at the Startup Grind Conference and following Moz for years. So there's a lot to dig into, but what I really want to start with is almost in the beginning. So obviously, you've done a lot in marketing. When did you get your start in marketing? Have you always been interested in marketing? Hmm. I'm not sure. I think originally, I was most interested in design. You know, So I started as a web designer back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, yeah, I love the visual aesthetic side. The problem was, I'm not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of pivoted to something where I found my strengths. Yeah. And that's funny because I just saw yesterday, Gary Vaynerchuk came to USC and he was talking about you know leaning into your strengths and doubling down your strengths versus your weaknesses. So clearly you have done just that with the marketing side of things. And you said you were in design and you did that for your mom's company that you joined very young. Take me through just that experience initially working with your mom. Yeah. I mean, sure. What do you want to know? I'm curious as to like, was there any different than, I guess, did you have a different job before them or you had anything to compare it against? Or was it weird going home then and be like, oh, hey, mom, we're still here. Like, you know, I'm just curious on the dynamics. I've been in a family business before, but for anyone wondering maybe about a family business. Yeah. So uh, we did not, I had moved out of the house for college. And so we did not live together while we worked together. But yeah, I mean, I think that the family dynamic can add some good things. It can also make things tough. And I think most people who've been in family businesses would say the same, right? That the, you know, the whole idea behind a, a familial relationship is that it is unconditional support and unconditional love. And a business does not operate that way. 
Um, <laughs> you know, I think you can unconditionally care for someone, but you cannot unconditionally support them, right? You have to recognize strengths and weaknesses and be willing to take tough actions sometimes and corrective action in ways that, that just would never happen in a normal family relationship. So yeah, I think that makes it difficult. Yeah. And as you progress with that, you know, eventually you ended up starting Moz from there. And with Moz, it was a consulting company initially. And, and with that, I'm just curious, it's like getting those initial clients for the consulting company. How did you do that? What was the initial growth for Moz? Actually, it was the same for the consulting business as it was for the software, which was, which was primarily the blog and the speaking events. That really drove both consulting clients in the early days. And then when we transitioned to software, drove most of our subscribers and signups. So with the articles, and you mentioned writing articles four or five days a week in your book about Lost and Founder, was that always a strategy you were going to do? Was just writing tons of articles and trying to build that SEO for the company? So what was interesting is I didn't really think of it as a strategy at the time. I mean, looking back in retrospect, obviously, it was very much a driver for the business. And it helped our organic traffic and sort of thought leadership in the space and built our reputation. But uh, when I was blogging, it was mostly out of a combination of passion and frustration, right? So frustration at Google keeping secrets around how SEO worked and frustration at the industry and how things worked that seemed to me to be unfair or inequitable and hoping to share that information. And really, you know, like I was always desperate for comments and people saying nice things about what I'd written and telling them that I'd help them. Like I sort of had that. I think I still do, you know, a little bit of an obsession with like wanting to be liked and wanting to be helpful and wanting to receive positive feedback from my work. And that I think was the big driver. And then it ended up that this also was a strategic move that drove a ton of traffic and also led to lots of inbound inquiries initially for the consulting business and then for the software. Yeah. And obviously I did the same thing with Just Go Fitness, the other company, writing articles kind of out of the passion as well, kind of like you mentioned, and just keep pushing forward. You know, it's impacting people, but then you also want the responses from that. Curious if you ever had any apprehension on writing or putting yourself out there or certain posts you like weren't sure of. Did you ever have any of that? Oh, yeah, I still do. I would say at least once or twice a week, I think about writing a post and decide against it because I feel like it's, you know, it's more for me than it is helpful for other people. And I think, you know, that's probably the biggest lesson I've had over the years is that there's, I don't need to write things just to posture or to whatever, defend myself or explain myself or, you know, try and uh, win over people to my point of view, unless that content is also helping people do their work in their business. Yeah. So you're thinking of it from that type of lens every time. And that took a long time. Yeah. Like how long would you say that took? Oh, probably a decade. I mean, my God. But over time, you figure that out. And and I'm curious with people trying to start a business, trying to launch a business and wanting to grow, let's just say through content marketing and through like writing articles. It's a long process to write an article. I imagine like what is the general process that you take now for writing an article? Yeah. I mean, it's funny you use the word, the noun article, which I almost never use to describe my own writing. I don't think I do write articles, right? I, I'm generally a, a blog post author, right? And when I write a blog post, that tends to be my approach is write very directly from the heart and then go back and include citations and research and visuals and data and whatnot. And with that, obviously that research, there's a lot of, I imagine there's keyword research, everything else. I'm curious the details into like your system for doing that even. 
Yeah, sometimes when I'm responsible, I do keyword research. I usually hop into Moz's Keyword Explorer and type in a few topics that are relevant to the subject and try and find some words and phrases that are popular and have some good organic click-through rate and aren't too difficult to rank for, and then make sure that I'm both covering those with the content, right, sort of solving the searcher's problem, as well as targeting the actual words and phrases in the title, in the meta description, in the post content. But oftentimes when I'm doing research, I'm sort of looking for what else have other people written about this topic. I don't try and pretend that I am the foremost authority on something or that I know way more than anybody else. I always try and do my legwork first, uh, Google around, see what's on page one, two, three of search results for a topic and try and discover what other people have, have sort of already written intelligently about this and then authored yeah, and obviously you wrote a lot. And I'm curious, when you started Whiteboard Fridays, what led you to diversify into videos as well as writing blog posts? Yeah, I think at the time it was just sort of a an experiment and then we saw good engagement on it. Didn't have good traffic, but it did get high engagement. Like the people who watched it remembered it and talked about it and amplified it, commented on it. And so we decided to keep investing and then it sort of became a tradition. And And once it was that way, I think there was like a, you know, an obsession on my part to want to keep making it better and better and make my content and my delivery better and better, make the whiteboards themselves better, get the camera upgraded, get the room upgraded, get the sound upgraded. And so now, you know, now it's a relatively, it's like a medium high quality production versus, you know, years past. Yeah. And with the different content, is that something where you had a content calendar and you're planning it out way in advance, more short term, or how was that system for you? Yeah, for Whiteboard Friday, it was actually, you know, even when I was at Moz and, you know, they had a content team who had sort of a much more structured and strategic calendar. I was always kind of exempt from that. They were just like, hey, whatever you've been doing, it is working great. Please keep doing that. And that was essentially, you know, I go to lots of events, I talk to people. At conferences, I'm very active on Twitter in the in the SEO community, and of course over email with thousands of people in the field. And so I would just take things that were kind of on my mind, on the mind of people in the industry, things that were being talked about, things that especially things where I thought there was a misunderstanding that was common to many people uh, who were you know in the earlier middle stages of their career in the field. I would try and create a resource that people could point to to say, hey, you know, I know a lot of the people who are very well known in the SEO world and have significant followings and, you know, consultancies and agencies and that kind of thing. And so a lot of the Whiteboard Fridays that I created was sort of for them to be able to pass to their clients and their junior team members and the people they were recruiting and working with to say, like, hey, I know you're having a tough time understanding this concept around canonicalization or around keyword cannibalization, or around barnacle SEO. Here's a seven-minute video that you can watch that'll break it down for you. Like, go check this out. Now I don't have to send you a lengthy email trying to explain it, and we don't have to have a meeting about it. Like, you can just grasp it real quick from this rant guy. Yeah, that seems like a really good way to amplify yourself, essentially make it way easier to replicate yourself. Yeah, right. And I think you know, my goal with Whiteboard Prey was always like, hey, let's help marketers. Yeah, that's the whole point of, of what Moz was doing. And yeah. and with that content, were you saving your ideas in a particular way? You mentioned you're hearing, you know, taking in inputs and kind of then making that into 
an article, sorry, a blog post or a video, were you like, did you have a power repository of article, you know, ideas for what you wanted to put out for content? Just keep going through that, or how did you go through that flow? Yeah, yeah. Usually, so I would email whoever is running the Whiteboard Friday sort of camera and, and structure on the content team. For a long time, that was Elijah and then Michael and now Tyler. And, you know, I just email them sort of like, hey, here's half a dozen ideas for next week or for the next few weeks. You know, here's what I'm thinking about filming. And I would just email them anytime I had an idea. And then we'd go and put that, they'd actually uh, put that into a doc. And sometimes the content team would do a little keyword research for me, especially when I was CEO and very busy. And then uh, we translate that into the Whiteboard Friday post. Awesome. And at Moz, I know you mentioned, you know, going from the consulting to the software side of things and it just made sense. And then, you know, going back to the book again, Lost and Founder, how the margins and everything else was just better on the software side. But what actually made you take that leap into that? Was it a huge shift for you guys or how did that go? Yeah, it was a fairly big shift. I mean, I wrote a chapter all about sort of the mechanics and the ins and outs of it in, in Lost and Founder, but, you know, short version is that. We had created some tools that we were using ourselves internally, and I wanted to share them with other people. And our developer, Matt, was like, dude, you're going to overrun our servers. Like, There's no way we can share these. And so I said, but I really want to share them. Matt, what if we create a PayPal paywall? And so uh, over the Christmas break of 2006, Matt created a little PayPal paywall, and he added a couple other tools in there, sort of gave front ends to these things we'd done on the back end. And then we launched it in 2007 and it took off like a rocket just because, you know, I think we had the audience, the right audience for it. There was already thousands of professional SEOs who needed SEO tools to help with their work and they were visiting our site. Yeah, it makes it, it seems like an obvious then, you know, next step type of thing. You said testing it out with a, a paywall just to see and it obviously worked extremely well for you guys. And looking at then going as the company is growing and you ship to software, you're growing, you eventually raise millions of dollars over time, which I want to discuss what are some things people should consider before raising funds? Because that's a whole issue of should you raise venture capital? Do you need to raise venture capital? Like, What are some things people should consider as maybe their business is growing and they're considering going that route? Yeah, I think for a lot of folks, they do it for the wrong reasons, right? They do it because of ego or prestige or because that's how their peers or, or other people in their field are capitalizing their businesses and they don't want to be left out. I think a lot of people fear that by, you know, if they don't raise and their competitors do, that they're going to lose the market to these better funded competitors. That is almost never the case. It's so infinitesimally rare that I, I think you should take that off your plate as a concern. And I think that you know venture capital is sexy. That's how you get written about and invited to events and parties and talked about in the press and you know all these sort of third-party accolades and recognition. I sent a, a pithy tweet. I think it was last year where I was like, "Make ten million dollars, crickets. Raise ten million dollars, everybody writes about you. Your friends congratulate you. The world goes crazy for you. You're the most exciting thing in town." That is how we get a culture that prioritizes fundraising over profitability and sustainability. And uh, yeah, and the reality is right that 95% plus of venture investments uh, don't make the necessary returns for their funds and portfolios. And usually when that happens, founders are going to have a real bad time. That is a hard, painful, 
oftentimes ugly journey for a lot of people, not just the founder, right? All the team members and employees who sacrifice cash for stock options and the hope that things are going to go well, that's no fun. I don't recommend venture capital for very many people. In fact, most venture capitalists that you talk to will say, VC is wrong for 99% of companies. And I totally agree. Unfortunately, it is marketed to 100% of tech startups. Yeah, that is 100% true. <laughs> everyone hears that, especially, I mean, literally everyone. I hear that all the time, even at, even at an MBA program. People talking about, oh, raising funds for your company and everything. And they're not really talking about the alternatives besides venture capital. Which is, which is just dumb, just dumb, because the alternatives are awesome. The alternatives let you maintain ownership and control. The alternatives let you write the journey, write the story that you want to write. They let you do a million different things with your company, depending on the outcome. They let you be successful at almost any income level, right? Anything above subsistence, and you are a successful entrepreneur, unless you raise venture, in which case, don't get to 100 million in revenue, you're screwed. Yeah. And what are some of those other options for people wondering or, or methods you would suggest then for companies? Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, on the far end of the spectrum, there's bootstrapping, which plenty of people have done, and bank loans and uh, small business administration loans. There's Kickstarter and other forms of crowdfunding and Patreon. And you can run your own sort of self-styled homespun crowdfunding campaign. You don't need one of the platforms if you don't want it. There are way more investment options around sort of angel structures and accelerator funds than there ever have been. And now there's starting to be sort of an emerging world around what I've been calling like zebra funding instead of unicorn funding. A fund that, full disclosure, my wife and I just invested in called Tiny Seed Fund. So Tiny Seed basically puts money into your company and they take a percent of your profits over time, right? So instead of you sort of giving up equity ownership and kind of losing control that way and having to yeah, hit the fund return targets. Hey, you know, if you're giving away five to 15% of your after tax profits per year and that money helps you get to a profitable place, that's kind of awesome. You could be making $100,000 in profit, a million dollars, 10 million, 100 million, it doesn't matter, right? You're successful at all those numbers. And yes, that's what really excited us about Tiny Seed. Spark Toro has actually capitalized, my new company has capitalized that way. 36 angel investors who own you know, a percent of the company and they get profit distributions from the LLC. Yeah, it's a very old school way of doing things, but also a very, yeah, much more equitable, much more realistic, right? Because you can be successful at so many different numbers. And then, you know, it goes all the way up, right? There's micro funds of VCs who will invest small amounts of capital and don't need those giant returns, you know, instead of, hey, we're looking for a 10x plus return, they're looking for two to five x. You know, there's angel investors who are doing likewise. There's a bunch of these accelerators, like I mentioned. So yeah, just a lot of options that didn't exist even five years ago that are on the table now. Do you think it's a matter of people not realizing those other options or they're just so blinded by venture capital that they don't do that even? I think it's both. I think some of it's an awareness problem and most of it is a marketing problem, right? Yeah. The press does not write about, oh, some angel investors put some money into this LLC in this unusual structure, right? They write about... This firm raised $10 million from this venture front, right? Right. And so I think that you know it's really hard to break through the noise. If all you hear is about venture, and all your friends are talking about venture, and everyone at every conference and event you go to is talking about venture, ooh, pretty hard to, uh, to break out of that. Yeah, it's going to be discussed then. That's going to be on your mind. And that's the only thing. And that's 
if you are influenced by that, which you're going to be, if it's all around you, it's kind of hard to avoid even. And I do want to get into Spark Toro shortly. And I, I remember seeing Tiny and reading a little bit about that. And I was really intrigued by that when you, right, you had some announcements about that with Spark Toro. But, but first with Moz, I'm just curious as to like the team over time. The big thing is, you know, any company is having the right team. And I'm curious of how you grew the team and how you really built the culture at Moz. Yeah. I mean, I think we did some things really, really right and different. And I think we did some really dumb, wrong things too. Yeah. And I talked a lot about that in Lost and Founder as well. I think probably on the culture side, some things that Moz did really well were early on establishing a vision, mission, and values, right? So this big picture vision to help people do better marketing and the mission to specifically build you know, the best SEO software in the field to help search marketers and content creators be visible and earn traffic from Google. And then the values tag fee, right? Which I think a lot of folks, it's an acronym, but yeah, resonated with a lot of people and attracted a lot of great people to the company. I think one of the big mistakes that Moz made, that I made, and that you know, sort of bakes itself into the culture. And I think that's true for a lot of things that founders do and a lot of ways that founders are, right? It, it becomes part of the culture. It's almost inseparable from the company and you can't really put your finger on it. But I was always terrible at being demanding with my team, right? At asking them for more, you know, telling them that their work was not right or good enough. I think I over-indexed on that sort of, uh, you know, what we talked about earlier on the family side of things, right? On the being unconditionally supportive instead of conditionally supportive, which which is how you have to operate in a business environment. And I don't think I did a great job of sort of helping my team upgrade their skills and asking them to. Just asking them, just saying like, Hey, thank you for doing this. It is not enough or it's not good enough. And here's what needs to be different. And here's where I'm asking you to change. And then I think I was worst of all at holding people accountable. Right. So even when I said like, Hey, this isn't good enough or we need more. I would not take that next step of, okay, you made an attempt or you didn't. And, uh, you know, rubber's meeting the road and we're going to have to say goodbye. It took me forever, forever to fire people and to recognize that someone wasn't a good match or a good fit and to take action based on that. And uh, yeah, I think that's a big learning lesson for me. I think it probably should be for, well, it turns out, I, I think this is the other problem. Most entrepreneurs over index the other way. Yeah. Oh, it's true. <laughs> right. And so I think I was overcompensating on that, you know, on the other side of that pendulum. And, and that's a hard thing to get right. Like it's difficult. I really liked um, on this front, I really, really enjoyed Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor, which sort of paints this picture of how this system is supposed to operate and gives you like an operating manual for how to care personally, but challenge directly and demand results without being an asshole. <laughs> and to that point then, Obviously, with that book you mentioned, people can check that out to get a better idea. But is there one or two things that you can just think of that you would have implemented or done that would have maybe helped you? Because it does seem like such a challenging thing, dealing with the team and hiring and firing is so difficult. Are there a couple of things you would have done specifically or set up? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one that Kim Scott talks about is the challenge directly piece, right? So having consistent, structured, clear, measurable metrics for accountability, right? Like I expect this, I expect this in this way, I expect it by this point. And oh, that thing has not been delivered, or it's been delivered, but it did not meet the expectations, or you know, it didn't hit its requirements. What can we do to help you get there? 
uh, let's do those things. Those things did or did not help you upgrade. Therefore, we're taking this action or that action, right? And just having that clarity right from the start, like expectations day one going in, you know what's expected of you. You know what you're supposed to do the next week, the next month, the next 24 hours. You know what you're not expected to do. You know how it's going to be measured. And I think that clarity is so freeing. It's so liberating to be like, oh, this is what my team needs from me. This is what my boss needs from me. Oh, I can see that I did it and it did not meet these expectations or it did meet all these expectations. I can feel great about that or not great about that. I can fix it in this way or I can't. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And Obviously, as you've progressed through the company at Moz, when you're at Moz, you, you guys achieved a, a ton of success. And I'm sure part of that has to do with the team. But I, I'm curious as to like what you think were the success factors that made Moz so successful over time. Yeah, I think you know Moz was always very good at attracting traffic through content that really did help people. I think it, it built up a great community of people who cared about each other and who helped one another. I think that it hit the market at a great time, right? So sort of was one of the very early pieces of web-based SEO software, if not the first, and was, you know, sort of extremely helpful, took a lot of manual pain in the butt tasks and automated them for folks. And that timing, you know, that market timing of like coming out with SEO tools in 2007, when Google was kind of on its crazy upswing and search was growing like a rocket. And SEO was growing like a rocket too. Yeah, I think the you know the most frustrating and sad part about that is Moz took its eye off the SEO ball and tried to expand into a bunch of other digital marketing practices in uh, was it 2014, 2013, 14, and that was the worst possible timing because the SEO market, like I think its growth had been very rapid from you know 05 to 2014, but you know, those last five years, it has gone insane. You know, it's probably 20 times bigger than it was in 2014 and now today in 2019. Jeez. And you mentioned taking your eye off the ball. Like, how did that happen? Are you just trying to expand in different ways or? Yeah, I think that we, you know, we were talking at the board level about like, well, you know, we're worried that we're this one trick pony. We only help with SEO. And does that create business risk? And is there opportunity in other fields? And, you know, could we expand and help people with all these other digital marketing channels? We had this foolish, totally foolish, I say we, it's me, right? Like I had this foolish idea, this notion that digital marketers were going to become less focused on single areas of operation and become more generalists rather than specialists, right? Like, oh, I think PR and social media marketing and content marketing and SEO and email marketing, I think these are going to merge into like kind of a single job role that never happened. I don't think that ever will happen. Yeah. And so we sort of tried to build products and do marketing around this like, oh, inbound marketing is going to be the next big thing. And it's going to be all these practices combined. Never happened. Never happened. Yeah. So you took a hit from that. But obviously, the company moved forward. And eventually, 2018, you left Moz to start SparkToro. Can you take me through why the start with SparkToro? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to prove to, you know, a small number of people and also myself that I could do this again, right? That I was not a one trick pony that I had learned a bunch of lessons from Moz and that, you know, I could identify a market need and build good software and market it well and build something special and hopefully build it without venture. Yeah, like you mentioned with Tiny Seed, right? Yeah, I mean, my hope was kind of to be a model to build SparkTor as a model for folks who didn't want to go that route 
who wanted alternative forms of funding and alternative ways of building a company and a different way of thinking about software, the software startup. So, yeah. And to that point, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people that listen that are, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs or early stage entrepreneurs. Like, I'm curious as to what the approach was when you're starting SparkToto, you know, you want to do this. Like, what is the planning process? What are the first ways you're testing or validating? Like, how does that process look for this new company that, you know, you're just starting, you know, last year, basically? Yeah, I mean, a bunch of it is in-person and phone conversations with literally hundreds, if not thousands of people. I mean, one of the things that's, you know, I'm very lucky in that I have a network of, if not thousands, tens of thousands of marketers all over the world. And that just led to a ton of conversations about what they're struggling with and what they're working on and led my co-founder Casey and I to sort of identify this audience intelligence piece as being truly lacking in any type of software, right? I'll describe the problem to you and the work that we do. And Justin, you can tell me, you can tell me if you have a name for the practice. So like when you're doing market research or audience research, right? You're trying to help a company figure out who their customers are, who's the target customer they're going after. One of the things you do in that process is figure out where you can reach them. What social networks do they use? Who do they follow on those social networks? What content do they consume? What YouTube channels do they subscribe to? What email newsletters do they subscribe to? What conferences and events do they go to? What podcasts do they listen to? What websites do they visit? What do they read? All of those questions are part of that, like the marketing strategy piece, right? Because you can't do good marketing unless you know where to do that marketing. And we found this weird thing where like marketers do that work, but it's very manual. It's often driven by like surveys and a lot of Googling and best guesses and those kinds of things, but they don't have a name for it. <laughs> yeah. It was audience insights. What have you been called? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. Audience insights, audience intelligence, audience research. I think, that, I think those are... Audience you know, those stalking, are you know, whatever. Either way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, internet stalking, exactly. <laughs> internet stalking. <laughs> yes, let's help you with this. <laughs> and yeah, that process, we were just shocked to find that you know people were paying a PR firm, a market research firm, fifty, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars, you know, for a three to six month project to deliver a report that was basically like, okay, your audience follows these ten accounts on Twitter, these ten accounts on Instagram these 10 people on LinkedIn, they subscribe to these YouTube channels, they listen to these podcasts, they go to these conferences and events. Like, okay, that's good data. Like, I want that data. Does it have to be six figures in six months to get it? Can I just type in a search, right? Can I just type in, you know, okay, I'm trying to reach financial planners. Type in financial planners to SparkToro. Get a list. Oh, here's a list of podcasts that financial planners listen to the most. Great. That's what I needed. Like, thank you. Give me that. And so that's what we're trying to build. That is amazing. It's going to be an amazing tool, it sounds like. Do you have like what is the rough timeline for that being ready, if you're allowed to say? Uh, so we've got, you know, we've got an alpha that we've been playing around with. I think it's close to being good enough. And we are moving towards a public beta. I'm actually today working on the uh, the survey that we're gonna ask all of our invite list participants, you know, we sort of send them a survey, ask them to fill it out and then add them to the invite list for the beta, which we're hoping to do in probably six to eight weeks. So yeah, getting close. That's awesome. It's coming up quick. And how do you know then when you've, you're going to be ready to actually launch? Like what point or what insights do you need to be like, yeah, now is the time? I think the biggest one for us is do the beta testers come back to the tool again and again without being prompted? Oh, okay. And like 
to that point then, coming obviously you want them to use it again and again, you want them to keep trying this out. What do you think are the key things, the key whatever be key features of the product that people potentially are going to love? Um, I mean, my hope is that so much of the value just comes from that initial search and list of responses, right? That like, oh my God, this data is finally available at my fingertips and it never has been before. And I can do this every time I publish a piece of content. I can plug in an audience or you know a group of people that I think this is going to be of interest and value to. And I can figure out, aha, here's the publications I should pitch it to. Here's the places I should pitch for coverage. You know, Here's the Twitter accounts I should get in touch with. Here's who I should email and see if they'll post it to their LinkedIn. Here's the podcast I should try and get on to talk about this new research or whatever it is. Right? Uh, here's the conferences and events I should pitch to sponsor or to set up a booth at or to go and talk about this content I've created. I think that's at the core of what we're trying to provide is just that instantaneous value you know, it seems so simple, right? It's just, oh, here's a list of publications with some details about how you know, popular or influential they are, including a number that tells me what percent of my audience, you know, financial planners or plumbers in Dallas, Texas, or artists on Patreon, or people obsessed with Lego, or, you know, whatever it is, that I can find that information at my fingertips anytime I want. It's going to be valuable, extremely valuable, it sounds like. And I'm actually really curious to check it out once it's live. Yeah. And looking at, you know, 14 or 15 years at, at Moz and now at SparkToro, what are some of the things you're doing differently building this company this time? Well, we're being uh, extremely cash conservative. Mm. You know, I, uh, <laughs> Casey and I both work from our respective homes in the Seattle area and we uh, have hired nobody. And we're planning to use the AWS sort of credits and we pay ourselves very small salaries. I'm actually deferring most of my salary for a while. So yeah, it's a very different kind of startup mentality than like the venture backed, you know, spend fast to get growth fast mentality. Right. Spend fast to get growth fast just to get another investment to do the right. same thing. Yeah. Because you have to show the numbers, right? And we, we don't have to show numbers. We just have to eventually reach profitability and then hopefully grow from there. And if we grow at 10% year over year, that's great. And if we grow at 50 or 100, that's also great. But you know, we don't have to be panicking like our growth rate dipped under 40%. We're never going to be able to raise our next round. We're going to have to do a ton of layoffs. We won't be able to sustain this business. And I can tell you from talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, they sweat every night worrying about that. Yeah. And, and to that point then, with Spark Toro, like, what is the grand vision of what this company becomes? I think that's the wonderful thing is instead of saying, hey, we want to be a billion-dollar unicorn. We're saying, hey, we want to figure out how big this market is and what we can become. And then we'll tell you what our grand vision is. Right now, our grand vision is solve this problem, live happy lives, work well together, enjoy helping people. That's awesome. It's definitely a different take. And that's why I was incredibly excited to have you on here. And after you know, reading the book, which I want to get into now, it's even more apparent. So with Lost and Founder, by the way, I suggest that book to everyone and I mention it repeatedly to people. Great book, honest, insightful. What prompted you to actually write that? Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of it was driven by you know, conversations. I kept having over and over again with entrepreneurs and founders and people who wanted to start companies and people who had joined startups. And I just find that I only have so many time slots for a, you know, an hour-long coffee or a beer or whatever. 
And we kept talking about the same things over and over. And I think they were really valuable, important things, things that a lot of people don't talk about, right? So, you know, Lost and Founder has this subtitle of a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. And that's what it is. It's painfully honest. It is not pulling punches. I think that a lot of people, when they write books like this after a career, they sort of don't want to burn any bridges or risk future relationships. And you know, one thing that's certainly true is before the publication of Lost and Founder, I would be someone who could very easily raise venture capital, right? I'm, I sort of fit all the demographic statistics and the background statistics. Like, you know, I'm kind of a, a VC's wet dream, right? But after publication of this book, I don't even think most of them would take a phone call with me, right? And that is not just true of investors, right? Like, I think that there's plenty of people from worlds of all kinds that, that would sort of read this book and be like, damn it, shut the hell up, Rand. Why you got to put our business out there? And I think that was actually kind of my goal. Like, you know, my editor, Nikki Papadopoulos from, from Penguin Random House had this like, hey, I want you to put this in here, but I don't want you to burn your reputation. Like, are you sure you're okay putting this anecdote about this board meeting <laughs> into the book? And my answer was, hell yeah, let's do it. I think that what the world needs is more people who are willing to sort of harm their own careers and reputation in exchange for helping hopefully thousands or tens of thousands of other people avoid mistakes and do better and learn from their you know experiences and i think there's not quite enough of that you know full truth transparency yes and it is very much so the full truth in the book i mean i listened to it I actually listened to the audiobook again uh, this week and it's yeah, there's a lot out there that is very, very honest and open. And it's why I think it is so good. And I think everyone should definitely should definitely read it. Did you struggle like writing any of that? I'm just curious. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, especially some of it is, you know, going back to old emails and threads and, you know, trying to recall like, oh, how did this work? And what was this like? And what, what was I feeling at the time? How do I describe that experience accurately? And part of that means reliving a painful past and having know, all these regrets come back to the forefront of your mind and sit with you, you know, that's hard, especially because hindsight, you know, it shows you the error of your ways so brutally, I think, at least when you're honest with yourself. And yeah, that's a hard thing. Yeah, it's something you have to live with and move forward with. And I'm just curious, like, how long did that even take to write? Like, how long was that process from an idea to getting it out? Let's see. So I pitched the book in January of 20. 16? No, it must have been 20. Yeah, 2016. And I wrote almost the entirety of the book between June 2016 and January 2017. And then, you know, sort of polished it up and edited it over the course of the year of 2017. And then it was published in 2018. So almost all of the writing was done in about six and a half, seven months. Okay. And what was that schedule for you? Because you're obviously running a company at the same time. I had actually stepped down as CEO at that point. I had a little more bandwidth, but uh, no, I had plenty of obligations. It was just a force myself to do it kind of thing, right? Like I basically took the time that I had been investing in blogging and turned that into book writing. Yeah, so still writing. And then even like today, I guess, how much are you writing still? Like how much time are you spending? Actually, not as much lately. I've, I've been much more focused on like the product and research side of SparkTor. I think I'll probably pick up writing heavily again once we launch the product. And then with the, obviously you're going to pick up writing again eventually, but one of the things that with the content marketing side of things, the marketing flywheel is something you've talked about 
over the last few years. But for people who don't know what that is, can you just kind of like briefly explain the marketing flywheel and how this approach is, is better than maybe like the funnel per se? I mean, the basic idea is that you want to build a repeatable structure for your marketing activities that scales with decreasing friction. And by that, I mean that you choose practices that you can invest in over and over that will become easier and easier for you to do and more and more successful and resonant with your audience and their amplifiers and influencers over time, right? So that can be done in a ton of ways. There's you know, a press strategy and PR flywheel that you could do with that, a content marketing and SEO flywheel that you could build, an events sponsorship and an events speaking strategy that you could do with that, right? So those are all sorts of structures for how you can build that. Everyone's should probably be a little different, but the concept is the same that it gets... It's hard at first, but it gets easier and easier and produces increasing results for the same work or the same results, but with less and less work over time. Yeah. And to that, with this marketing flywheel, I mean, how do you approach even which content to create, whether it be blog posts or videos or podcasts or you know infographics or in-depth guides or so many different things? I'm curious as to how you approach what ones you should create. Yeah. I mean, I would say, first off, content creation doesn't have to be part of your marketing flywheel. You could have a influencer marketing and ad strategy, right? That might be your flywheel. But Whatever you choose, it should be something that you are personally passionate about, where you have unique value to contribute, value that's different from what everybody else is doing in the field, and where you feel like you can consistently invest and consistently improve. We don't have much time left. So I just want to get to one of the main things here. As you've gone through your career and ups and downs, obviously, I'm curious as to how you've managed those ups and downs of entrepreneurship for the last you know, more than a decade. What have you done to kind of manage and deal with the ups and downs that come with entrepreneurship? I don't know. I mean, I would say that, you know, over time, experience helps you be a little mentally tougher and a little bit more emotionally aware. And that one of the nice things about getting older is that you are a bit more resilient and hopefully a bit more self aware. So you can help control the way tough things hit you and. You know, and hopefully have people in your life that you can talk to about those challenges as well. It never gets easy. It just gets a little easier. Yeah. Never easier. And there's always new challenges, it seems like. Definitely. And especially now you're launching a new company, which is exciting. But also then it's a whole other world again, going through it all over again. Yeah. And where can people find you uh, online, see more about what you're doing, everything with SparkToro as well? Yeah, uh, you can check out our site. It's sparktoro.com. And for me personally, uh, I'm most active on Twitter where I'm at Randfish. Awesome. And everyone else, check out the book, Lost and Founder. As I've mentioned, I've now been through it twice. It's just insightful, honest. And Rand, thank you for taking the time to write it. I know you mentioned you know potentially burning bridges or whatnot to actually get that out there. But I will say from at least one person here, it's been very helpful and useful. And I appreciate the honesty that you took in writing it. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me, Justin. Yes, thank you very much. And have a great one, Rand. Talk to you later. All right, take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a great day.